Many of us in here, and I believe this is true for, for lots of us, we want the benefits of hard work without putting in the work for it. And so what I mean is, is this. Um, some of you in here are musicians, right? And so many of you who play an instrument, there have been many... Actually, raise your hand if you're a musician. I'm just curious if you're like playing band or something like that. Okay, so musicians, many of you... Uh, probably have put in hours upon hours upon hours, even days upon days upon days on practicing your craft as a musician, right? Like, nod your head if you've practiced a ton as a musician, right? Yeah, it's, um, we, we all, as musicians, we have to practice. Let me, let me ask you, raise your hand in your, if you're an athlete. Keep your hand up if you've had to practice a ton to, to kind of cultivate your craft as an athlete, to get better as an athlete, yeah. Okay, so what about um, artists? Are there any artists in here? Yeah. Um, do you like to draw? Yeah, you probably like to draw. You've probably had to practice drawing to get good at it, right? But many of us, I think, I think when it comes to these things, um, raise your hand in here if you're a student. Is there any students in here? Right, and, and here's the thing. Whether you like it or not, in order for you to be a good student, you have to practice. You have to, you, have to, you have to cultivate, you have to work at getting better at a student, as a student, period. No matter what it is, no matter what skill or ability or talent you have, you can always grow in that skill, grow in that ability, grow in that talent with practice. What about being a Christian? Do you practice being a Christian? Is that a thing? Like, can we, can we actually, like, go to Christian practice and practice being a Christian and, and through that practice kind of grow in our craft as a believer? Is that a thing? And, and I believe the answer to that is yes. I, be, I believe that, that we can grow as a believer. And I do, do believe that it takes practice. But many of us in here, whether you are an athlete, an artist, a musician, a student, no matter what it is that you do, no matter what it is that you're good at, all of us wish that we could get better at what we do just by like sitting around and doing nothing, right? Like, let's be honest. I wish that I could be a better musician. I'm trying to learn how to play the drums. Um, it's taking a really long time because I don't have tons of spare time to practice. But I wish I could just like magically sit behind a drum set and learn how to play the drums. Because I, I, I want the benefits of the work without actually having to do the work. And I think we, we, we really think this way as believers. We want the benefits of being a mature Christian. But we don't want to put in the work and the practice necessary to grow in maturity. The things that God has communicated in the Bible to say, if you do these things, you will grow. If you do these things, I and my faithfulness as God will bless you and, and mature you. And you will grow in your intimacy with Jesus. And you will feel closer to God. And you can be certain that you are saved because of these things. You see, but when we think about growing in Christ, when we think about practicing our faith, right, I think we can drift to one extreme, right? On one extreme, we're over here, and all we're doing is we're focusing on the work, right? We're, we're, what do I need to do? So I need to read my Bible, I need to pray, I need, I need to come to Hype, I need to come to church, I need to, I need to maybe, like, maybe talk to somebody new while I'm at school this week. And, and all of these good things, we turn them into checkbox things that we just check off, we focus on the work, and we miss the Lord over that work. We miss the Jesus who all that work is supposed to point to, and we lose, lose our way. And so what happens for this person over here is, is we genuinely believe and have convinced ourselves of the lie that God loves us less when we don't do these things. But if I read my Bible and I pray and I kind of have a good Christian day, that day God loves me more. And we fall into that lie and we focus on the work. But the, but the other side of that, right, we, we kind of come over here and instead of focusing on the work, what did I write down? There it is. We forget the work. We forget about it. And I, I actually believe 
That's the majority of us in here. That we forget the work. That we forget that the Christian life calls us to obedience. It calls us to do something. Yes, we're saved by grace. There's nothing that you can do in here to earn your salvation. God doesn't look at you and say, okay, you've, you've done all of these good things, so I'll, I'll, I'll let you in to my family. That's not how that works. God doesn't save you by what you do. But as a product of saving you, as a result of being saved, we then are compelled by our love for Jesus to do good works that God has actually prepared for us to walk in before we even were born. So as believers in here, if you're, if you're a Christian, if you call yourself a Christian, Ephesians 2.10 says that God has, has prepared things for you to do before you were even born. Good things that he wants you to do to proclaim the gospel, to communicate who Jesus is, to love people in your life. And it's our job, it's our role, it's our responsibility as believers in Christ to walk in those things. Some of us focus on the work, some of us forget the work. I genuinely believe that many of you in here have, have, have fallen into the lie that you can believe in Jesus and not change a, th a single thing about your life. That you can just be who you were before you knew Christ and just kind of wear this tag as Christian, this brand as Christian, by coming to church, by maybe opening up your Bible when you feel like it, or praying when you feel like it, and, and nothing actually changes in your life. Nothing changes in your heart. You don't have a deeper compassion for the people around you. And you see, those things, our desire to read the Word, our desire to love people, our desire to do these things, comes out of a love for God that's given to us by the Spirit of God. And so these things that God calls us to do, these works that he prepares for us before we were even born, these things, we actually want to do those things if we're in Christ. Why? Because we've been transformed by the Spirit of God. God has given us his Spirit, and because he's given us his Spirit, our desires then change from wanting to rebel against God and be against God to now wanting to follow Jesus and be devoted to him. And that's what we're talking about tonight. A genuine devotion to Jesus, a genuine devotion, not a half-hearted devotion, not a fake devotion, but a genuine devotion to Jesus means following him with everything you have, no matter what the cost. And we're going to see that today in Luke 9. So let's start in verse 15, or 18. I'm going to read a little bit, and then we're going to talk about it. Verse 18, while he was praying in private, this is Jesus, and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? They answered, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others, that one of the ancient prophets has come back. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. But he strictly warned and instructed them to tell no one, saying, it is necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and be raised on the third day. So what's going on here? Jesus asks, he's got his friends, his closest friends, the disciples are, are here with him. And he asks the disciples a question. He says, who do the crowds say that I am? Who do the crowds, who do they say that I am? Not you, not the disciples, not the 12, but who do the crowds say that I am? What's, what's popular opinion regarding Jesus? And so they give him three answers. They say, uh, John the Baptist right? John the Baptist. John the Baptist was this guy who came with authority, and basically his message was this. 
Being a Jew doesn't save you. You need to turn away from your sins and turn toward God. That was John's message. And then, so people who wanted to do this, they got baptized in the Jordan River. Some of you might know the story of Jesus actually getting baptized by John. And so some people actually believe that John the Baptist came back from the dead in the form of Jesus, which makes absolutely no sense, but it's what people thought. And, um, but this was a, a, an opinion about Jesus that recognized that he had some sort of authority, right? John the Baptist had authority. He was proclaiming this powerful message of turning away from sin and turning toward God. And so people saw that Jesus was kind of proclaiming the same thing. He was communicating the same thing to people. And so people thought he was John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Well, then some other people thought he was Elijah. And Elijah, for those of you who don't know, he was a prophet from the Old Testament who did miracles. Jesus did miracles. But an interesting thing about Elijah was he, what he did was he communicated to a wicked nation just how rebellious they were against God, called them to turn away from God, and called them to throw away all of the false gods that they had worshipped and turn back to the God of Israel. And it was actually a prophecy in the Old Testament that somebody doing the ministry of Elijah would return. Somebody communicating that same message would return. And what they would do is they would pave the way, they would announce the coming of the true Messiah, of the true king that was going to reign. And the Bible predicted it. John the Baptist actually was that Elijah, and he prepared the way for the Messiah, Jesus, to come. But then other people just kind of said that Jesus was maybe like, he was one of the ancient prophets, one of the prophets of the Old Testament. He was, he was like that. So one of the interesting things about all three of these answers is they all recognize that Jesus had some sort of authority. But then what Jesus does is he turns the question onto the disciples. And then what happens? Devotion gets personal. It gets personal. You see, many of us, when we think about Jesus, we are so focused about what other people think. One of the most common answers I'll ask people, or common answers I'll get when I ask people, like, why don't you share your faith, is this. Why don't, I don't know what other people are going to say about me, or I don't, I don't, I don't, you know, people who don't believe in Jesus, I don't know how they're going to respond, I don't know, you know, they might ask me a question that's like something I don't have the answer to, and so we actually convince ourselves by thinking about what others think of Jesus not to communicate Jesus. And so we allow what other people believe about Jesus to influence what we actually believe about Jesus when we don't communicate him to people. But we, we, we do this all the time. We focus on what other people think in other areas, but we also focus on what other people think about Jesus and use that as an excuse not to grow in our own devotion. I don't care what other people think about Jesus. Tonight's about you, personally, each of you. To answer the question yourself of who you think Jesus is. Because that's the most important question you can answer in your entire life. Not where you're going to school, not what do you want to be when you grow up, not, not who you like or what sport you like or what team you like or any of these things. The most important question that every single human being has to wrestle with on the face of the earth is what are you going to do with Jesus? Who do you say that he is? And Peter, boldly, because Peter's kind of brash, he doesn't really think about things, he just says them, but he speaks for the group and he says, God's Messiah. Now, let me ask you this. Raise your hand if you've ever heard the word Messiah. I'm just curious. Okay. So funny thing about words like Messiah, we read them and we automatically assume that we know exactly what they mean. Don't do that. When we read the Bible, don't just assume you know exactly what, what, what your reading says interrogate it, ask it questions. 
what does Messiah mean? Don't convince yourself or assume that you have the answer to that question. Do some digging. Do some research. Look it up. Ask a leader. Ask somebody in your life who you know follows Jesus really closely. Don't, here's what you don't do. Don't Google it because you're going to get some crazy answers. But talk to somebody who's faithfully following the Lord, and I promise you they will provide you with the answer. But to Peter, Messiah was, was the same thing as king. What time do I got? Okay. Messiah was the same thing as king. And so let me ask you this. Raise your hand. I want to call any. What comes to your mind when I say the word king? I know we don't live in, like we have a president. We don't have a king. But think of movies you watch or whatever. What comes to your mind when you think of a king? Money? Someone who rules over absolutely everything, right? Like it's one person, what they say goes. Okay, I like it. What else? Um, a monarchy? Yeah, look at you getting smart. That's a form of government, right? Okay. They live in a castle. Yeah, so they, they probably like got it going on money-wise, right? They, like they, they can provide for their needs. They, they, they probably have surplus, right? They're not just getting by like paycheck to paycheck, but they, they have tons, tons of money. They live in a castle. Burgers, Burger King. Nice. I like it, Eli. Huh? Trump? Like the president, Donald Trump? Yeah, I, I can understand that because he kind of rules in a sense. Um, he's not a king, but I understand where you're going. Luca? Huh? A throne? Yeah, a king sits on a throne. What else? LeBron James? Yeah, King James. Okay, I like it. Jewels. Yeah, jewels, royalty. Okay, so... We have royalty, we have riches, we have a throne, we have authority and rule, we have all of these things. And we have, we have burgers, and we have LeBron. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> when you think of Jesus, do you think of royalty? Do you think of authority? Do you think of wealth? Do you think of those things? Do you think of rule? Do you think of somebody that you cannot disagree with? Because a king you can't disagree with, what they say goes. Do you think of king when you think of Jesus? I can't assume we know what Messiah means, but when we, when, we, when we see Messiah as king, well, then we see something very interesting. It paints this picture of royalty and authority in, 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 this, in this vision of who Christ is. But then we see something very peculiar. So, so Peter declares, you're the king. You're the rightful heir to the throne of the nation of Israel. You are the one who's supposed to rule the entire universe. That's what Peter says there. And then what does Jesus say? He strictly warned and instructed them to tell this to no one. Now hold on a second. Why would Jesus, why in the world would Jesus say, yeah, I'm the king. Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Keep it a secret. Why would Jesus not want anybody to know that he's king? Because the people didn't know what kind of king Jesus was actually going to be. You see, people thought that the Messiah was going to come and rule in many of the ways that you and I think about king. He was going to set up some form of government. He was going to kind of rule with an iron fist. He was going to abolish and obliterate any nation that disagreed with him. And he was going to set up his kingdom. And that's not what Jesus was going to come to do. And so Jesus concealed his identity as Messiah from the crowds, revealed his identity as Messiah to the disciples so that the crowds would not try to put him in a position of king that he was not supposed to be in. Jesus did not come to set up a government. Jesus came to die. Look at what he says. Why? Because it is necessary, verse 22, for the, that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected 
by elders, chief priests, and scribes be killed and be raised on the third day. This is a different king. This is not a king who wears a crown. This is a king who serves. This is a king who came to die. But when we see Jesus as king, we have to recognize something because now Jesus is reigning at the right hand of the, the, the Father. That's where, where he's at right now. He's in glory. And he actually promises that we get to participate in that glory if we follow him. But then he moves down the text and he says something very, very interesting. Verse 23, then he said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, if anyone wants to be my disciples, anybody, if anybody wants to be saved, if anybody wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Have you guys ever heard that? If you want to be a Christian, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow Jesus. What you've most likely heard is this. If you want to be a Christian, you need to ask Jesus into your heart, and he will most certainly come in. That's not a biblical idea. You will never see in the Bible a command to ask Jesus into your heart. And the reason why is because this is actually what Jesus, this is from the mouth of Jesus. He does not say, ask me into your heart and I will most certainly come in. No, no, no. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. Now, what does that mean? Kings require loyalty, right? Loyalty, to be loyal, to be committed, to be sold out, to be, to be on the same team as the king. You need to be loyal to them right? And so Jesus, what he's actually asking for here, what he's saying is, is loyalty. Deny yourself. Because here's the reality. Loyalty isn't asking Jesus into your heart. It's not. And the reason why loyalty isn't asking Jesus into your heart is because typically when we do that, we're just saying a few words and hoping that the best result happens. But that's not what a genuine commitment to Christ is. A genuine commitment to Christ is taking up your cross. Self-denial is complete selflessness. It's selflessness. And so being devoted to Jesus actually costs us something. It costs us our selfishness. Because you and I, we're very selfish people. We are. I am most often most concerned with my own wants and my own needs. But this text calls me to selflessness. It calls me to serve. It calls me as a believer, my role is to take up my cross and follow Jesus, to serve him with every single thing that I have. And that means that I cannot be most concerned about myself. I need to be most concerned about him. You see, Jesus models what self-denial looks like when he says, take up your cross daily. What, what does that mean? Jesus laid down his life. He literally was so selfless to the point of death. And for some of us, that might be what it costs. Because people do die for their faith. And that is actually an honorable thing, not a dishonorable thing. And so our devotion costs us our selfishness. We've got to take Jesus at his word here. We can't ignore what he's saying. This is the answer. If you, if you want to follow him, deny yourself. Set aside your wants. Set aside your needs. Set aside your passions. And make him your supreme passion. Make him your king. Your school performance is not your king. Your sports are not, is not your king. Your family, your friends, not your king. Your own passions and pursuits and what you want to do in the future, 
It's not your king. Jesus is your king. He's calling you to set those things aside. Not to ignore them, but to set them aside so that Jesus is your king and then he influences all of those pursuits. He changes all of those pursuits. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. Devotion costs you your selfishness. But look at verse 24. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will save it. What's he saying here? He's saying devotion will cost you your comfort. Many of us want to live a comfortable Christian life in a comfortable school with a comfortable family and a comfortable dog and a comfortable job and a comfortable whatever. And we want to sit around and we want to be comfortable playing Fortnite all day or we want to be comfortable... Yeah, see, we want to be comfortable playing Fortnite all day, or we want to be comfortable just hanging out and watching Netflix, or we want to be comfortable just ingesting an endless feed of social media and numbing our minds to what's really going on in the world. We want a comfortable life, and Jesus actually calls us out of a comfortable life and says, no, 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 don't focus on your comfort. Focus on me and let me be your comfort. That's what Jesus is saying here. That your devotion to Jesus, a genuine devotion to Jesus, will cost you your comfort in this world so that your comfort can be in Him. If you want to save your life, Jesus says, if you want to preserve your life, if you want to protect your life, if you want to structure everything in your life around your plan and your safety and your bank account and whatever, your school performance, all of these things, if you want to save your life and preserve your life and protect your life and live a life of safe comfort, you're going to lose your life. You're going to lose your life. But then he says, if you lose your life, if you lay your life down, if you deny yourself, if you take up your cross, if you embrace me, if you set aside your desires and you embrace the desires of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, if you follow me by denying yourself, by laying aside your selfishness, by laying aside your comfort, by laying aside everything that you want so that you can embrace Jesus, as King Jesus promises, you will have life, eternal life. And not only that, you will have eternal purposes in your limited life on this planet. And God promises that for you, that if you lose your life for the sake of Christ, if you lay your life down for the sake of Christ, if you follow Jesus with every single fiber of your being, you'll save it. Following Jesus was never meant to be an easy way to live. Following Jesus was always meant to be hard. That's why he says the way is narrow. Few will find it. Few will will live this crazy life of self-denial for the sake of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Verse 25. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me, listen to this. I want you to hear this. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and that of the Father and the holy angels. Devotion is personal. It will cost you your selfishness and it will cost you your comfort, but it will also cost you your image. It will cost you your image. And one of the things that Jesus does that's very interesting here is he, he pokes at our longing for personal gain. We have a longing 
to, to, to do better, to be better, to gain more. That's, it's, it's in our human nature. It's who we are. But we want personal gain, right? If we do good in something, we want to be affirmed in it. But then we want to do better and we want to get more affirmation. So we have this longing for personal gain. And Jesus shoots that down. He says, he says what does it benefit a man? What does it benefit a woman? If they gain the whole world, if you have everything in the world you ever wanted, but you lose yourself, you lose your soul, you lose you. There's no benefit in that. There's no benefit in gaining everything you have in this life and yet losing your life. And so Jesus pokes a hole right into our personal gain and our longing for it. But then he does something else. He, he pokes a hole into our longing for approval. Every single person in here, I don't care who you are, you are very concerned about what other, what other people think about you, myself included. And because we are so concerned with what other people think about us, we are ashamed to be followers of Jesus. And so what we do is, is when the moment comes, when it's like gut check time, and it's time to communicate our faith to somebody, we cower in fear. You're not alone in that, I promise. My, my, my most fearful time for me to share and communicate the gospels with my family. I'm most terrified to communicate the gospel with my lost family, my family that doesn't know Christ. And in those moments when I, when I shrink back in fear, I'm ashamed to call Jesus king. I'm ashamed to call Jesus Messiah. What does he say? He says, look at this. Take him at his word. It says, if, if you're ashamed of me and my words, the son of man will be ashamed of you. Because the reality is for every single person in here, there will come a day where Christ will return. And we will all stand before the throne of God and God will bring account every single thing you and I have done. All of our thoughts, our secret thoughts, will be exposed. Every single bad thing that you have ever thought will be laid before your, your face, before the throne of God, and you will have to give an account for that. You'll have to justify why you did that. That's going to happen for all of us in here. And Jesus is going to be right there. And if we live a life characterized by shame, of Christ. It's evidence that we never knew him. And so he says, he promises that he will be ashamed of us. We can't let our lives be characterized by shame of Jesus. But the promise here is this. This is the amazing thing. If you're in Christ, if you have the Holy Spirit, this promise shows us. Because if you have the Holy Spirit, if you're saved, Jesus won't be ashamed of you. He won't. He will stand right by you and he will say, you're with me. You're covered in my blood. You're declared not guilty. And all of the things that you've done in this life will be exposed and forgiven. Every horrible thought that you and I have had, every horrible thing that you and I have done, every act of rebellion against our creator will be laid before the Father and forgiven because we're with Christ, because he's our king and because he laid his life down for us. It will cost you your image. It will. You're not going to have as many friends as you want, but you have a king. And the friends that you do have, man, you're going to be tight because you've got to stand together because following Christ is hard. But when we follow Christ together, it creates this beautiful intimacy and friendships. My, 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 uh, 
the closest person that I've ever experienced friendship with outside of my marriage is Eric Johnson. You guys know him. I've never been closer with anybody else. We have nothing in common. That dude hunts. Do I look like I hunt? No. I can barely shoot a gun. If I shot a gun, it'd probably hit me in the face. We have, we have, we have barely any, in, the, the, like one thing that we're both interested in is Chicago Bears football, but like we barely talk about Chicago Bears football. Here's the deal. The thing that makes our relationship so close is Jesus. It's Jesus. And it's because of Jesus that that friendship has been strengthened. And when following Jesus has gotten hard for both of us, guess what? That friendship solidified and was strengthened. When following Jesus was a joy, we celebrated together and that friendship was strengthened. And that, that's a bond that will never be broken. That's a friendship that I, I don't know if I'll ever be that close with another person. I hope I will. It's the same thing for my, my wife. Yeah, we, we love each other dearly, but the thing that makes our friendship, our relationship strong is Christ and our fellowship in him. And so, yeah, it'll cost you your image. It will. It'll cost you some friendships. But the friendships you will have will be incredible because they will transcend, they will go beyond this life. They will go beyond this life into eternity and those friendships will never die or spoil or fade. They will be eternal bonds burning with the embers of Jesus himself. Look, here's the thing. Jesus made devotion personal when he came to earth. But Jesus didn't just make devotion personal. You see, devotion costs us our selfishness, but Jesus gave up himself entirely. He modeled what it meant to be selfless, laying down his life, laying down his life for selfish people. And so the Son of Man came down in complete selflessness and service to save the selfish. The Son of Man came and left his position of glory at the Father's throne. He left his position of glory at the Father's throne, probably a very comfortable position, and took a very uncomfortable position as a human being who could be tempted so that we could be comforted by God out of our uncomfortable position as enemies of God. You see, Jesus modeled, modeled what it meant to live a life of discomfort for the sake of glory. And we'll be uncomfortable now, but we'll be in a glory one day that is, is incredible. It's incredible. And Jesus gave up. He stepped down from his throne, and he took on the image of humanity. Jesus stepped off a glorious position and took a not-so-glorious position so that we who are in a not-glorious position can be put in a glorious one. And so Jesus essentially gave up his image, his status before the throne, in a sense, to become a man. He never ceased being the son of God, but something happened when Jesus, in humility, stepped down from his throne in glory to become a person so that he could die on our behalf. Everything we do on a Sunday night is structured around devotion to Jesus. But devotion to Jesus will cost you your life. It's going to cost you your life. 
But what we stand to gain, the cost is nothing. We gain glory. We gain eternity. We gain unity with God. And so it's worth it. It's worth your life. The gospel is worth your life. And that's what devotion to Jesus is all about. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. I pray that as we go into a time of reflection that we would hear from your word and we would hear from your spirit, God, and you would prompt us to come to you. You you would prompt us to come to you in humility. God, that we would turn away from our sins and we would turn to you for healing, for forgiveness. And in faith, God, we would ask you to forgive us tonight for how we've been ashamed of you. We would ask you to forgive us for how we've, we've settled for comfort and selfishness and we've been wrapped up in our own image. God, help us to lay those things down tonight before your throne so that we can embrace the true gospel that costs our selfishness and our comfort and our image so that we can gain glory and unity with you. We love you so much in Jesus' name. Amen.